Unexpected Elements is the podcast shining a light on the science lurking behind the news. We know lots of scientists and we're not afraid to call them up. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is Discovery from the BBC World Service and I'm exploring two stories each week of how insects have transformed our world. So, I'm holding here, (laughs) as one does, holding a chicken's head. It's in a jar, a perfectly preserved jar, and it was collected in Sri Lanka in 1907. And the eye is still there looking at you, but surrounding it in the eyelids are hundreds of tiny little fleas. Over 80% of described animals on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien or as strange as many a mythic beast. But some of us who study these wondrous species, both now and in the past, have discovered a treasure trove of remarkable insights. Insights that have increased our knowledge across many a scientific discipline. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series, I'm taking a peek into some of these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly novel developments. There's very few of us who haven't come across fleas in our life, thanks to our love of fluffy household companions. These insects don't fly to escape, though. They jump, and they have an amazing jump. As a child, I would catch them and then I'd flounder around trying to recatch them as they jumped out of my grasp. How do they do it, though? Well, much of our insight begins with the late day Miriam Rothschild and what turned out to be her lifelong fascination with these acrobatic insects. They're rather sweet, aren't they? <laughs> not everyone who has a great love of fleas, but I have. These fleas could jump 30,000 times without stopping. It's really rather a lot. The name Rothschild was synonymous with banking, and Miriam's father, Nathaniel Charles Rothschild, was also involved in the family business. But his heart lay in fleas. He travelled extensively during his life and described over 500 species to science. He believed that formal education crippled young, especially bright girls' minds. And so Miriam's garden was her classroom. Her home was her laboratory. Her teachers were the books, the people, the world around her. She was to gain no formal training, but amassed eight honorary doctorates. And as entomologist Richard Lane remembers, she was to become a leading authority on all things flea. I suppose her first real claim to fame was that she started working on on the collection you've just been talking about, Charles Rothschild's collection, and she wrote several volumes of a thing called a catalogue of fleas. Now, you might think this is some really boring list of, of all the names of fleas, but actually, when you open these huge tomes and look inside, there's a massive amount of biology and observations about these fleas, not just what their names are and describing them. I have described them as insects which fly with their legs. Wings are no good to you if you live in fur. They just get in the way. So as a parasite, they've lost their wings, but they've replaced it by this stupendous jump. Miriam would come waltzing into the museum, and she was really an indomitable figure. She didn't have much time for bureaucracy and hierarchy of life. She just wanted to talk to people who were interested in doing science. 
we're just walking into the flea collection. And what is amazing about the flea collection and why I feel very special getting to curate it is it's in the original cabinets. So the Rothschild bequest was that we keep them forever in these cabinets. And these are in absolutely beautiful wood. They're lined with velvet and softly cushions that the slides will sit on for eternity. Okay, and above that, we've got tiny little cabinets. And I love this because it's so Miriam. So some of the cabinets are labelled Ovi Larvi Pupa. She's obviously made some serious detailed dissections and show the life cycle of various ones. But then there's one that's called Odds and Ends, because who doesn't have that? And there's another one called Monstrosities. And it's where she's got slightly, slightly larger or weirder than average fleas on a slide. And it never fails to cheer me up. Well, of course, the jump was a sort of scientific sideline that I was interested in because one realised this jump for the flea was so extraordinary. I mean, they took off and disappeared. Most flea legs average just three millimetres. And so without much length, they really don't have much time to generate energy to push off the ground. So how do these tiny insects therefore achieve such amazing jumps? Miriam carried out many intricate dissections of the flea's anatomy and produced some beautifully detailed images of their tissues and joints. The flea's jumping, she claimed, was not just down to their muscles. Here's Greg Sutton of Lincoln University, a specialist in the biomechanics of insects. What fleas do is they use a little trick where they store energy in a spring in their thorax first. So they lock their legs in place, they store energy in this spring in their thorax, and then they release the spring and their spring recoil can recoil the energy and shoot their legs out much more quickly than the muscles could do it alone. This is mechanically identical to when we use a archery bow to fire an arrow. We have our muscles generate the energy slowly, and that energy is stored in the elastic energy of the bow, and then we release the bow, and the bow returns the energy to the arrow much more quickly than we could have generated it. The acceleration actually turned out to be 140 G, and that was 20 times the acceleration of a moon rocket re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. These acceleration forces are phenomenal. And the key to the spring's success in propelling fleas a distance of nearly 40 times its length comes in the form of an elastic protein known as resilin. It was first discovered in the wing hinges of locusts by Danish zoologist Torkel Weisfoe, and he was able to show that this protein undertook hundreds of millions of extinctions and contractions without losing its form. It basically sprung back into shape every time. So the spring is put together like a sandwich. There's the protein resolin that the insect manipulates that's very stretchy. And then there's a saccharide called chitin, which is very, very tough. And the springs are made of a composite of chitin and resolin. And that interface allows them to load the springs and keep them loaded for long periods of time in preparation for a jump so they can jump at a moment's notice. And it's these unique properties of possibly the most elastic substance we know of in the natural world that's beginning to attract the attention far beyond the realm of entomologists. Hi, I'm Christy Kick. I'm a professor of material science and engineering and of biomedical engineering at the University of Delaware. And we've had a long-term interest over the last 15 years or so of trying to apply resolin in different biomedical applications. 
Inspired by Resilin's resilience, the Kick Laboratory has been synthesising this amazing rubber protein. Their aim is to model and mimic Resilin's ability to stretch and recover, and so to regenerate damaged human body parts that undergo repetitive strain at high frequencies, such as the vocal cords in the throat. We've been chemically reacting the Resilin to make hydrogels, so things like Jello that you might be familiar with in your kitchen, and to make those materials so that you can inject them with a needle and then have them form as hydrogel materials in whatever organ. It's amazing. So the the long term objective of your work is to develop these these materials that you can use in very very small delicate environments. That's exactly right. So in the insect organs, resilin is combined with other materials. Mm -hmm. So you can add polymers, you can add nanoparticles. So we can make structured materials there. We can isolate cells in specific parts of the hydrogel so we can start to capture what the organization of cells is in the organs. I mean, the applications of this are, are quite extraordinary. I mean, my mind's just racing with all sorts of things we can do with this. Yeah, our minds are racing too, Erica. Um, we're very interested in where we can apply these types of materials mm-hmm. to help heal other tissues so that we could use them potentially as components of heart valve materials. So we're, we're really excited about the opportunities in the years ahead. I love the idea that a whole new class of materials has been developed thanks to the discoveries of inquisitive entomologists. But one question has long remained unanswered. Since fleas and their complicated legs always jump off at an angle, how do they launch? How is the force of the spring transferred to the ground? Back in the 1970s, Miriam Rothschild had proposed an answer by applying the still-infant technique of high-speed photography. The spools they had for these cameras only had five seconds of film on. So you had to set up the camera, set up the experiment, run the camera, and pray to <laughs> God that the flea jumps within your next five seconds. We built a little pyramid for these fleas and they used to walk up and sit on the top and that enabled us to focus on the animal and it was very important to know when the flea would take off. And if you ever try to make a flea jump on cue and in the right direction, you'll know it's not an easy task. Despite reels and reels of film, the answer was to prove elusive. And so 40 years later... Up steps this young contender in the shape of you. Basically, we had better cameras. So we could film the detailed motions of the leg to measure when does the acceleration start when it jumps and when does it end. And the knee leaves the ground, the trochanter leaves the ground at the very beginning of the jump, but the foot stays in contact of the ground the whole time, and we could check is the acceleration going on when the foot is in contact with the ground or when the trochanter is in contact with the ground. And we found that when the trochanter is off the ground and the foot is on the ground, the animal is still accelerating. So the force has to go through the foot. Harnessing all these mechanics is one of the several important lessons fleas can teach engineers. Getting up off the floor, overcoming obstacles without flying, is now fueling a new generation of jumping micro-robots. Sarah Birkbreiter of Carnegie Mellon University is developing robots that are as small as a grain of rice. And the possibilities for these are limitless, from surveying inaccessible habitats to helping with search and rescue. 
So we started actually at the smallest scale with the silicon, which is the same material that you use to make uh, integrated circuits, and silicone, which is the rubber uh, that's very much like resolin, and created little mechanisms to effectively store energy and release that energy quickly, just to show that we could actually combine those materials and use it in this kind of way. So in this case, there is no motor to load the spring. Uh, we use a method in the lab called graduate student with tweezers. Uh, <laughs> and the graduate <laughs> student in question would load it and let it go. I like that uh, equipment. I thoroughly approve of those sort of things. <laughs> so, so we were able to get jumps of over 30 centimeters. Um, so, wow. so that gave us a lot of confidence going yeah. forward. But in order to get kind of a, a, a jumping robot that was fully integrated, uh, we've gone to slightly larger scales, but we often use still those same combinations of rigid and more soft components uh, in those systems. When you started um, thinking about designing these little micro robots, did you ever imagine it would be so intricate and have such an application? No. <laughs> it's a short <laughs> answer to it. I thought I was just going to build some very cool little jumping robots and that was going to be the end of it. That one small leap for fleas is enabling one giant leap for humankind. But it's from a tiny leaper to an elusive giant drinker that we turn to next and a relationship that would help prove the evolutionary reason for a flower's extraordinary exotic structure you're listening to discovery from the bbc and i'm exploring how insects have transformed our world okay so i'm back at my desk and i've been given this hawk moth to look at and there is something very alluring about these moths i mean straight away they've got these really stout bullet-shaped bodies with long, narrow forewings and shorter hind wings, and they look like little stealth bombers. Over 80% of animals described on our planet are insects, and yet their appearances can seem as alien and as strange as many a mythic beast. But research, both past and present, has led to many an interesting scientific discovery. The bit, I guess, that most concerns us about the insect is often the mouth part. And the hawk moths have got an amazing mouth part. They have a tongue that can uncurl to anything from just a few centimetres to, well, actually, I'm not going to say, getting ahead of ourselves, because it was the length of this moth's tongue that turned natural history on its head, offering the simplest but most effective proof of Darwin's theory of natural selection. I'm Erica McAllister, and in this series I'm taking a peek into some of these entomological pioneers and examining how their groundbreaking observations and experiments have led to some truly innovative developments. There are over 1,700 species of hawk moth globally, which is a surprising number to many people as they're not often seen. And the reason is, is that they're mostly nocturnal. When I'm on a tropical field trip, at night we hang up our collecting sheets to attract them. We switch on a light, we pour ourselves a glass or two of wine, and then we wait. My colleague, hawk moth expert Ian Kitchen, calls them the sports cars of the insect world. So they fly very fast, they're very aerodynamic, they're very acrobatic. They're quite impressive to see flying around flowers. They can fly backwards, they can hover... And that's what most people first see them. They see these things hovering in front of flowers. 
and they suddenly think, what on earth are hummingbirds doing in Britain or the US mm. or wherever? And then they look a bit closer and they suddenly see, hang on, these are, these are moths. It's the flowers that seduce the hawk moths and one family in particular, the orchids. Naturalist Charles Darwin was also lured to these flowers, like a moth, well, to a flower in this case. Many don't always think of Charles Darwin as a botanist, but in 1862, just a couple of years after his sensational Origin of Species, he unexpectedly followed it up with a rather technical tome on these highly prized plants. I think what fascinated Darwin about orchids initially was just that they were available. Science historian Jim Endersby of the University of Sussex is author of A Cultural History of Orchids. But I think what was driving him was the idea of what natural selection was good for in terms of helping naturalists make sense of the living world. And so I think he was then looking around for other examples, partly because it was fun and he was enjoying it, but also I think because he wanted to persuade his fellow naturalists that this wasn't just some random theory, this actually changed the way you practice natural history. Despite the title, various contrivances by which British and foreign orchids are fertilised by insects and the good effects of intercrossing, the book contains some extraordinary research. And indeed it was a modest success as Darwin tried to win over the sceptics by showing evolution at work. He realises that in a great many cases, an insect specialises in a particular orchid and the orchid seems to specialise in a particular insect. And it's that sort of lock and key fit that he finds so extraordinary that explains why they have such extraordinary shapes and colours and uh, smells and so on. And these are all the things that, of course, had traditionally been explained as God's design. God loved beauty, he loved rarity and complexity, and he made the orchids to delight us and fascinate us. And Darwin is just thinking, well, I think I can explain that without resorting to the notion of divine intention. And he uses natural selection to explain it. Even today, in adapting Darwin's playful approach to observe the dexterous pollination by hawk moths, the behaviour between flower and moth is a source of constant intrigue. Ian Kitchen. If you try it with buddlier flowers and a, and, a, and a horsehair bristle or something like that, and just try and aim the bristle into the flower, you miss. You can't do it. Not only is it putting the tongue into the flower precisely at half-second intervals, but it's not putting it into the same flower twice, so it must be able to remember which flowers mm. it's been put into. And these moths, as a result, have become incredibly intelligent. Darwin's interest in the insect-flower relationship ratches up a gear when in January of 1862 he receives a parcel from the wealthy orchid collector James Bateman. The package contains specimens from Madagascar that took Darwin by surprise. Amongst them several, as Darwin himself describes, astounding star orchids with their long whip-like nectaries, as rare as hen's teeth, each with a price tag in today's money of £10,000. So Darwin gets these things and there's a lovely letter he writes to his friend Joseph Hooker who is the assistant director at this stage, later the director of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. Uh, and he writes to Hooker and says he's just received this. And he describes the plant and says, good heavens, what insect can suck it? Because this orchid was huge. The neck of the orchid is over a foot long. Yes, it, it gets the scientific name Angricum sesquipedale, which means a foot and a half. That's yes. a bit of an exaggeration, but they're often well, 10, 11, 12 inches long. So when he sent it by Bateman, he realises that if he's right, somewhere in Madagascar, there must be an insect. He realises they're almost moth-pollinated. They're white and they're night-blooming. 
It must have a tongue long enough to reach the bottom of this nectar, this long whip-like projection, because there's only nectar in the very bottom of it. Yeah, I mean, this idea of co-evolution, this idea of plants and animals evolving alongside each other is quite a novel suggestion at that point. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that I think persuades Darwin that he's onto something with natural selection is because it explains these puzzles. So the argument very simply is if you imagine the moths varying at random and the orchids varying at random, some moths would be slightly better at getting the nectar from Mm -hmm. deep nectaries. And in those cases, the pollen from those orchids would be much more likely to be transmitted to other plants from the same species that also had long nectaries because the moth would be the only insect that could get at that nectar. And just through random variations and natural selection, gradually you would get a specialisation developing over many, many generations so that you would end up with, as I said, this lock and key fit between one insect and one plant. 41 years would pass after Darwin made his prediction and 20 years after his death before a moth that was potentially capable of pollinating this orchid was discovered and named. So it was in 1903 that Walter Rothschild of the Tring Museum and his associate Carl Jordan, in their big book on hawk moths, everything you wanted to know about them at the time, described a moth from Madagascar. It was a subspecies of a moth that was previously known from Africa, but was different, it was larger more colourful in some respects. And they described it as subspecies predictor. They called it predictor in recognition of the prediction that had been made that this moth would actually exist. This is what became the moth that was considered to be the pollinator of these orchids. So I've come into the uh, collection at the Natural History Museum in London And I'm actually in the cocoon where two-thirds of our insect collection is housed. When you start to look through it, you'll realise how big some of these specimens are, especially when you're with the hawk moths. I've got a drawer that I've been let to have a little look out in front of me of the Xanthopan Morgani predictor. And these moths are enormous, Okay, They have a body length of about six, seven centimetres, and several in the drawer have had their proboscis, their mouth part, uncurled, and they are about 18, 19 centimetres long, these ones. The mouth parts of insects continue to fascinate and intrigue, and in our era of turning to nature for bio-inspiration, the bending, curling mechanism of this natural straw is an obvious structure. For nearly a decade now, Peter Adler working with the engineers at Clemson University, South Carolina, has been studying the proboscis to try and create a microprobe that uncurls, bends and takes up tiny amounts of liquid. But far from being what was thought to be a sophisticated drinking straw, Peter and his colleagues have found that the hawk moth proboscis simultaneously carries out an essential self-clean. There is a mosaic of repellent and attractive structural features It's like a series of valleys and ridges. And so if, for example, the ridges are hydrophobic and the valleys are hydrophilic, then you can get an overall flow of liquid Mm. into the proboscis while at the same time those hydrophobic properties will be repelling or allowing the stickiness to slide down. So if the internal properties are such that nothing sticks to them, 
It then also opens up the possibility to develop microprobes for forensic work where nothing can be contaminated. Or even to reverse the flow, think about reusable sterile needles for mass vaccinations. You know, if the proboscis were the size of an elephant proboscis, we would have figured this out <laughs> some time ago. <laughs> and, and you could imagine making a surface that has both water-attractive and water-repellent properties. You could lay it down with a very fine 3D printer, for example, mm. making little ridges that are hydrophobic while the little valleys are hydrophilic. Something like this. I think could be easily accomplished in the laboratory and would more or less replicate what we're seeing with the actual proboscis. There are so many possibilities, yet mimicking what has taken over six million years of evolution to get to this point isn't going to come quickly. Amazingly, it wasn't until 1992 that scientists finally observed and filmed Darwin's moth visiting and feeding on the star orchid. Being able to see this must have been pure joy to the scientists who recorded it, witnessing the 25-centimetre tongue uncurling on its approach to the flower's narrow nectary. So it actually has to aim the tip of the proboscis 25 centimetres in front of its eyes into a very small opening in the front of this orchid and then move in bit like having a, an endoscope, I suspect, just slide the tongue in until it gets to the bottom of the tube. The star orchid and the hawk moth was typical of the kind of research that the theory of natural selection highlighted. Darwin hadn't just been collecting and classifying and describing, but had turned natural history into a science of predicting. If Darwin hadn't been such a homebody, he might have gone off to Madagascar and looked. But oh. after the Beagle voyage, he basically yeah. never went anywhere after that. But what's fascinating is he was so confident. He claimed in the second edition of the Orchid book that entomologists had mocked him for suggesting that there might be a moth with such a long tongue. And he stuck to his guns. I'm sure there must be nothing else could explain this. And it's remarkable to me that Darwin got so many details of his theory right, since the mechanism of inheritance had yet to be determined. But a promiscuous fly taking up residence in a laboratory vinegar bottle would mark itself out as the tool to change all that, as we hear next. Thanks for listening to Discovery from the BBC World Service. I'm Erica McAllister and the producer was Adrian Washbourne. Catch you next time. Unexpected Elements is the podcast that sifts through the week's news to unearth surprising nuggets of science. I really wanted to look at an animal that, as far as we could tell at least, doesn't seem to age. OK, you have my attention. Tell me more. And uncover the unexpected connections between them. I think now's a good time to talk about worms. Really? Worms? Absolutely. Unexpected Elements from the BBC World Service. Amazing stuff. Find it wherever you get your BBC podcasts.